You're listening to a Sunday sermon from Seven Mile Road Church in Melrose, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. To check out more about us, go to sevenmilemelrose.com. There are certain names that carry a lot of weight and meaning. We have some recent Seven Milers with some great names. Jude and Alden and Titus and Noel and Anastasia, beautiful names. I was reading a story online of some Australian parents tried to name their child Bonghead. Baby Bonghead has a nice ring to it, probably not a good idea. Kid in front of my house the other day doing something that used to be illegal, maybe his name was Bonghead. We're talking about names for a moment. We know Sarah Bita, some of the other Sarahs here, I don't know that I see any in the room. Your very offensive name is illegal in Morocco. It's good to know. Biblical for sure, illegal nonetheless. Some names bring about good thoughts. Others don't. If you're thinking about a future child and you're thinking through names, Judas, middle name Iscariot, not a good choice. Through an IMDb search, not a single famous person is named Judas. I was kind of surprised, but so it is. For the time being... That name stands for something that no one wants to be associated with. Now, why is that? It's because Judas betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss. Judas is where we get the phrase, kiss of death. So this morning, we have the most famous scene of betrayal in human history. And it was this treachery from Judas, Jesus' own friend, that sent Christ to his cross. It is a scene at night full of immense human sinfulness, and it certainly teaches us something about the importance and the nature of, it teaches us something about the nature of our own sin and ourselves, but it's more a story about God's sovereignty in the dark. One of the darkest moments of history, a time of seeming hopelessness and despair, was appointed by God And furthermore, it was willingly accepted by Christ. So as we typically do, what we're going to do is walk through the text this morning, verse by verse, and we're going to draw some applications at the end. So verse 47 on the screen. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Okay, so to set the scene, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and it's nighttime. It's dark. Maybe they have some torches lit, but it's hard to see. And it's figuratively dark, theologically dark. A great evil is afoot. And that is that Judas, the traitor, finally reveals who he really is to everyone. This is his moment. Judas is like Scar in Lion King. Even as a little kid, you know Scar is the bad guy. I know we're not supposed to judge by the way people look, but let's get serious. He has a huge scar on his face. His name is Scar. It's no surprise when he digs his claws into Mufasa. Scar Scar digs his claws into Mufasa, his own brother, and he betrays him and he sends him to his death. No one's surprised. This is Judas. We already knew who he really was because Luke has already told us who he is. Earlier on in chapter 6, verse 16, we first encountered Judas as one of the 12 disciples, and this is what Luke says. He's talking of a different Judas. He says, Judas, the son of James, 
and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Not cool to be Judas, the son of James, after all this went down. Tough timing from his parents. All the gospel writers tell us who Judas is before Judas commits this act of treason. So we really aren't surprised when we read it, even if we are shocked at the way it goes down. But the first point I want to make is this. Jesus himself is not surprised. Jesus knew everything about this. And that makes this a different kind of betrayal story. Picture Jesus earlier in chapter 22. Pretend for a moment that Jesus is like the Godfather, sitting at the table, instituting the Lord's Supper. And when he dips his bread in the wine and he says, one of you will betray me. One of you is a traitor. If that was the case and he was a mafia boss, what would happen next? Peter and James would grab Judas from behind and drag him off screaming. If Jesus was a worldly mafia boss king, there would be no garden of Gethsemane. There'd be no kiss, no arrest, no murder. Because anyone who has ever had knowledge of a betrayer has, ever, has never allowed themselves to be betrayed. To allow yourself to be betrayed makes no natural human sense. So to be clear, this doesn't mean that Judas isn't a betrayer. Judas is a real traitor for sure. But not in the sense that Christ is caught off guard. So this makes this a different story about Jesus' betrayal. It's unlike anything that's ever happened in world history. Now what is happening is Jesus, the God-man, fulfilling the Father's plan to redeem his fallen creation, goes into this garden betrayal willingly, eyes wide open, with full knowledge of the events that would take place. He specifically goes to a place that Judas knew of to be captured. So this is God working things in seemingly upside-down ways in order to display his, plow, his power and his glory to a backwards world. So it is that Judas comes walking into the garden, and he has a crowd with him. And what Luke tells us later on in these verses is that they're chief priests, so that's the religious. They are officers of the temple, so that's military. And they are the elders, the civil leadership. In other words, to say that everybody in a worldly official power position, is in on this fix. And they've come to take Jesus away under the cover of darkness. So we move on, verse 48. Judas drew near to kiss him. But Jesus says to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So now why does Judas use a kiss? Mark in his gospel tells us the kiss is a sign this is the way that Judas would let the authorities know who Jesus was. Maybe they wouldn't let him draw a map. Maybe they wouldn't let him stay at the bottom of the hill and just point and say, he's up there. It's dark. And we have to remember that they are very nervous to arrest Jesus because of how unique he was. So the kiss is a way of making sure that there's no mistakes. You go in there, pretend you're still his buddy, and you kiss him. It needed to be Judas. It needed to be intimate. Now, a good contrast for us to go to for this moment with Judas is in Luke chapter 7. And Judas was there for a different kind of kiss on Christ. It's there we see this scene. A woman of the city who was a sinner 
when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed him with ointment. We are told that this woman kisses Jesus' feet. It's with tears of joy and appreciation for Jesus. She kisses him. And when Judas, who is standing there, sees this, he makes an air of being upset. We don't get this detail. We don't get that detail in, in Luke. But in John, he tells us this same story. And he says that Judas, after seeing this kiss in the expense, he says, why wasn't that ointment sold to make money for the poor? John tells us that Judas said this not because he cared about poor people, but because he was in charge of the money bag and he used to steal from it. So Judas is a thief and a hypocrite. This woman is humble and grateful. This is a contrast between light and darkness, between Christ-centered and me-centered, between being able to see who Jesus is and completely missing who Jesus is. You either kiss Christ because you love him like this woman, or you kiss Christ in betrayal and rejection like Judas. It's a sharp contrast. So it's clear Judas doesn't actually see what he's doing, because if he could really see what he was doing, no one would do this. He has blinded himself. Judas is in the dark. But Jesus doesn't let his hypocrisy go unmasked. He cuts through to Judas, and he tells him who he's betraying, And what he says is he's betraying the Son of Man. I know Justin doesn't like my Lord of the Rings references, but he's not here. Even still, I won't use Theoden and Grimma Wormtongue. I'll use Michael Scott and Dwight instead. In a moment of weakness and sinful pride, full of bad advice from Angela, of course, Dwight sets up a meeting with Jan, Michael's boss. And he explains how it is he, Dwight K. Schrute, who should be regional manager of Dunder Mifflin, not Michael. Dwight was supposed to be at the dentist. Dwight betrayed Michael. When Dwight gets back to the office, Michael already knows that Dwight's a traitor. Dwight reaffirms he was at the dentist. His dentist's name is Crentist. Well, it's a great scene when Dwight thinks he has the upper hand. He's finally going to be regional manager. Michael knows what he did. Michael knows who he is. He is a betrayer. And there's no hiding that Michael is the rightful regional manager of Dunder Mifflin. And now Dwight will need to do his laundry forever. So it is when Judas is exposed. No analogy is perfect. Judas decided to meet with Jan, and it was a terrible mistake. When Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of Judas, he does so by pointing to his own authority. Jesus is more than the rightful regional manager. He has the authority of God. He is the biblical son of man. That's what he says. Jesus is the heir of the inheritance. Jesus is the true Adam. Jesus is coming on the clouds with power and dominion. This is who the son of man is. So at this moment, Jesus pulls off Judas' mask and he shows Judas that he has traded God. Now at this point, all the disciples' eyes are open. 
they see the situation, they wake up from sleep, and they see that Judas has brought a crowd in, they have clubs, they have swords, and they're actually going to arrest Jesus and take them away from him. Well, that's not happening on Conceal and Carry Peter's watch. No, no, no. Peter's apparently a big Second Amendment guy, and he's about to exercise his rights. Remember earlier in Luke, Peter told Jesus he would go to prison for him. He told him he would die for him. Well, he genuinely meant it, and eventually he would, but first he was going to try to kill for him. Now, that's another level. And when it comes to Christ and the cross, that's the wrong level to be on. Verse 49, it says, And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. What in the world? The book of John tells us that the disciple who swings the sword like Conan is Peter. And he tells us that the slave or the servant who loses his hearing is named Malchus. This is a scene where Peter partially misses this guy's head, but totally misses the point. First, Peter is not aiming for his ear. He isn't Zorro. He isn't Puss in Boots. This isn't a fencing competition. He's swinging for this man's head. Peter is trying to kill him. Second, Peter continually misunderstands Jesus and did not grasp what he came to do with his life which was that Jesus came to die and give his life away as a ransom. And he meant that literally. He's been saying this. Earlier, he tells Peter that Jesus, that he tells him that I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be killed. And remember what Peter does. He grabs Jesus. He brings him to the side. He says, absolutely not. And what does Jesus tell him? He tells him that he's being a satanic hindrance that Peter's setting his mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. Peter was told to keep watch and pray that he might not fall into temptation, but he was sleeping. And when the moment of darkness came, he pulled out a sword and he was wrong to do so. So while it's true, we can probably admire some of the good in Peter here, loyalty, maybe zeal. We have to admit that he came in a little too hot. We would rather be Peter than Judas in the garden scene, but it's true that Peter is also blinded by the darkness. He couldn't see that the Son of Man came to die. It's hard to see what God is doing at times, particularly in the dark. Well, what about the servant, Malchus, the guy who just went from perfect hearing to half deaf? Jesus puts his missing ear back on his head. Did he regrow a new ear? Was the healed one newer looking than the old one? Was it a different size because Jesus is a comedian or a little bit resentful? Did Jesus pick up the ear off the ground and reattach it? Who knows? What we know from Jesus is that he does this stuff so naturally, it's as if he controls all the ears in all the world. And Luke puts it in here as a simple matter of fact. All the gospel writers record this ear event in the healing of it. It's one of those crazy details that multiple writers could never have conspired to fake into the telling. 
So for the skeptic reading the Gospels, you come across something like this, this right ear thing in all four Gospels, that John uses the guy's name specifically. You have to scratch your head at the specificity of it. Maybe you scratch your earlobe. You wonder why in the world would this detail be in the Gospels? So what can we take away from this ear part of the story? There's a couple things. The first is that it shows us the difference between Christ and everyone else. He loves his enemies. He is Lord of the universe and not least Lord of this situation. He gives this guy back his ear. Maybe because of it, we'll see Malchus in heaven. It's an act of kindness to an enemy that is so very like Jesus and only like Jesus. The second is this act of healing completely removes any accusation against him or the disciples that he is a violent revolutionary. And think about it in his arrest. They would have loved to have had this part in the trial. They can't take Malchus up front and say, see this man with the missing ear? His disciples did this. They took his ear off. They can't arrest Peter for attempted murder now either. Try explaining that Malchus had his ear cut off when he's standing there with two ears on. They can't. Jesus removes this accusation entirely, and he sets things back to right for the disciples and Malchus. Now, this feeds into what Jesus says next. They aren't coming out against a violent robber. Verse 52, Jesus says, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. I was going through airport security. There were two lines. I walked through. I did the diamond thing. I passed right through, and the person allowed me to pass. They told me I could go over to my, my luggage and get my stuff. And I looked over, and they were invasively searching a very old lady in a wheelchair. And I, and I remember looking, and I was like, they were making her stand up, and they were patting her down. And I remember thinking to myself, this is the silliest thing I have ever seen. In no world in no universe, in no dimension, is this 90-year-old woman a threat to anybody in this wheelchair. I walk through unhindered. She needs to go to the back room. Doesn't make any sense. This is kind of like Jesus, not the old lady part. But no, in no world is Jesus a violent threat. He has never been this. Even when Peter acts out with the sword, the last time a Christian is ever recorded using violence, Jesus heals Malchus. So their approach is entirely unnecessary in that he isn't violent. And it's ridiculous when you start to consider what Jesus could have done if he decided to use force. This man who makes demons shriek out of people and walks on water and heals withered hands and puts back missing ears Imagine if he actually did decide to fight back. What are clubs and swords used? What are, how are clubs and swords useful against Kal-El from Krypton? It's crazy that Jesus allows this to take place. So why does he do this? Why does this happen? It happens because this is the time appointed to it. This is the time appointed for it. This is their hour 
and it is a time appointed to the power of darkness. This is the last thing that Jesus says. This betrayal of Jesus by Judas, Peter's misstep into violence, the enemies of God, they've come with arms against his son. They leave the garden with Christ in what seems like their victory. But all of this only happens because God appointed this to be their time for it. He gave men a time, and they used it for darkness. They reject the light. They get the dark. Now, that's the story, and we have a few things that we can draw, for it, draw from it as we start to close. There are others, but here are a few takeaways. The first is this. We commit outrageous sins in the darkness. Another way to say it is that sin makes all of us traitors. I've had to think a lot about Judas this week. Thoughts like, man, do I feel bad for Judas? The whole time the guy's a false convert and he hangs around long enough to commit the worst betrayal imaginable for the dumbest thing, a bag of silver. What's silver worth today? Certainly his bag, probably nothing. What's an eternal soul worth? So I thought through Judas a little, and the truth is that Judas is a hard, scary, but very important example to all of us in this room today. Judas is an example of how our sin blinds us and leads us to dangerous places and makes us traitors. For Judas specifically, he loved money. Now that's a warning. Money was the desire that brought about one of the world's worst sins ever committed. Judas chooses money over God. It costs him everything. Now, it's not just money, although many of us may need to hear that and reflect on that. But we learn from Judas that all sin blinds us. And ultimately, sin is the power of darkness, which seeks to kill the light. So most of us know John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Those are precious, beautiful words, true words. We want the love of God. We promote the love of God. The love of God is what we need, what the world needs. But we don't often like dealing with John 3.19, which says that this is judgment. The light came into the world, but the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Why do we love darkness and hate light? Because our works are evil. That's what John says. We are, either loving, we are either living in the light or we are loving the darkness. So a Christian who loves their sin has to hide it because the light of Christ would kill it. The unbeliever who loves their sin has to try and kill the light because the light eventually becomes the enemy. Judas teaches us both errors. If Judas would have followed Christ, he would have had to give up on his sin. And because he wouldn't give up on his sin, he ended up betraying God. So for us this morning, we either repent of our sin and we walk into the light, killing it, or our sin will become the power of darkness and make us an enemy of God. Hard words, but this is part of the message that we get this morning from Judas. The next point is this, ready for the dark. Times of trial, times of tribulation, times of stress, moments of weakness, Moments of fed-up fatigue, our human frailties, times where sin is so present in us. How is the Christian to be ready for
for these inevitable times that come and will, that do come and will come? One of the answers is prayer. The old timers would have said, woe to the prayerless Christian. This is where we learn from Peter. What might have kept Peter from hitting Malchus? What might have opened Peter's eyes so he would have been ready for this dark night and this heated, scary trial of his faith? What did Peter need to do after he hit Malchus? Jesus told Peter to watch and pray. It's not that Christ expects our perfection. We learned last week that Christ is more than an example. He is more than a role model. Christ is our perfection, is our healing, is our acceptance from God. It's important that as we look to Jesus to be our righteousness, we do so with eyes of faith, which is we watch. And we do so with prayer. We communicate our soul with God. We learn from Peter that prayer in the garden of trial was necessary. So how do you face a day that you know is going to be bad? How do you deal with times when you see in your such you see in yourself such failure. The way through hard times in our lives and the way to find healing and forgiveness after our failures is to watch and pray, to turn eyes of faith onto Christ and to communicate our souls to God through time and prayer in the Spirit. Now lastly, and this brings us to a close, the last point is this, sovereignty in the dark. Another way to say this is God is sovereign through the worst sin of you, of me, of the world. When Judas accepted silver and betrayed Christ, that's what he was doing, yes, but he was also doing something else he didn't understand. He was preparing the lamb for slaughter on Passover. When the crowd went to arrest Christ, that's what they were doing, yes, but they were also doing something else they couldn't understand. They were bringing the Son of God to judgment that the wrath of God may fall on on him instead of those who were predestined for glory. When it comes to God, even in the worst of human animosity and hatred for him, anyone anywhere has only ever furthered his purposes in the world. Now, this is hard for some, and I get it. How can God allow sin in the world How is it possible that a holy God allows evil? God forbid uses evil to his good ends. How is it that God allows suffering in me and then tells me that it brings about his good ends, his good intentions? But so it is. And so we learn in the garden. The worst sins were committed against his son, and it was his plan for good. Sin may be permitted for a time, but as we learned, it's only for an hour. God permits it to a small time for an hour, and God always wins. The sovereignty of God isn't supposed to make us stumble. It's supposed to bring us to worship. It should bring us to incredible confidence in peace in troubled times, in anxious news, in downcast soul, in times of suffering. Our all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God works all things even the worst of things, to bring about his glory and our joy. Would you believe that this morning? Would you pray with me?